Matthew's gospel, if you'll turn there, Matthew's gospel, how big is your faith? We're talking about the difference between a great faith and little faith. Last week as we started out, we said there are five passages in Matthew where Jesus tells his disciples these words or says to them or calls them, Oh, you of little faith. And we said that's important because the Gospels are a lot of things, but one of the things they are are discipleship manuals. In fact, we even said that the book of Matthew is bracketed at the beginning and end with the statements about God being with us, a discipleship term. It's his name, Emmanuel, in chapter 1, verse 23, and it was the last words from Jesus' mouth before he ascended into heaven that he would be with us always, even to the end of the ages. And so we know that Matthew is all about how is God with us. And if you're a disciple of Jesus like the 12 disciples, you'll know that that is easy to recognize cognitively, but oftentimes, especially in storms, difficult to practice. Two things, and you've heard me say this over the years, if you've been here long enough, disciples always wanted two things in their relationship with their rabbi. One was this, to know what the master knows. And so they studied their sayings and their teachings about Torah and how to live out the scriptures because they wanted to know everything that the rabbi knew. And number two, they always want to do what the master does, which next week will explain why Peter gets out of the boat and nobody else does because he is the lead and number one disciple. And if Jesus can walk on water, Peter says, I can too, right? So that was his thinking. But storms, and I want you to give you a couple principles to think about storms tonight in ways perhaps you haven't traveled down in your mind as often. Number one would be this one. Storms are for discipleship. If we're honest tonight, we would probably say storms are, at least we think it in our feelings, right? For, to test us. They're for things that we'd like to avoid and get out of our lives as soon as possible. Um, we don't usually think of storms in that positive of terms. We usually think of them in negative ones. But there are two storm stories in Matthew's gospel. And although they have similarities, there are different lessons to be learned in each one of them. And they are both couched in preferences to the disciples. It's the disciples who are in the boat. It's Jesus who is in the boat with them on the first one we're going to talk about tonight. So if you want to look ahead and think about the passages, tonight is a story about crossing in a storm in a boat when Jesus is with them. Chapter 14 is the second storm story, and it's different in many ways, but this being one is this is the time they cross in a storm, but Jesus is not with them in the boat. And we'll say more about it next time, but the reason is, is because Jesus knows that very soon they'll be going to Jerusalem, and he will die, and they won't have him in person anymore. And he's beginning to disciple them to say, how will you face storms when I'm not actually physically here? And God wants you, us to be able to know that too. So there's two types. And so God uses, if you want to look at the text, he uses storms in our lives to help us to recognize what it takes to follow Jesus in the most difficult days. And you can see the terms literally used to end the paragraph before our text and to begin ours. Matthew eight twenty two, And Jesus said to him, 
follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. In fact, the whole paragraph before is about people who say they will follow Jesus, but in the end, they really didn't want to count the cost. With that whole discipleship mentality and what Jesus is teaching them in mind, discipleship is now going to be more than verbalized. It's going to be visualized in a storm, and that is our paragraph. Let me read it for you. Matthew 8, 23. And when he got into the boat... His disciples followed him. Now, that was what the guys before said they would do, but they ended up not doing. These ones actually do follow him. So when you are willing to actually and literally follow Jesus, here's what you have to understand. There will be storms. Now, that doesn't seem like a great principle, but it is. Because most times we are... And our minds think that storms are unexpected to us. They're surprises to us. And especially if the storms are severe and perhaps like this one in our minds, life-threatening, um, we think that something has gone wrong. This probably shouldn't be. My life doesn't ha- shouldn't have these things in it. But what we find out from these storm stories in Matthew's gospel on discipleship is that this is what disciples go through. In fact, if you really want to understand it all, when you go to the end of the gospel, you'll know that Jesus faced the worst storm of all when he died on the cross and experienced a storm like no one ever has ever thought of experiencing, and that was the wrath of God for our sin. So not even Jesus himself, the master, the rabbi, is exempted from storms that take place. So storms are part of following Jesus. And we can choose tonight, do you see them as detours? In other words, here's the main road, here's how my life should go. But storms to you, if you're not careful, can be detours that, you know, I have to kind of go off the road, the main road, and I go on some side roads over here, and it's not very good traveling, but, you know, eventually I'll get back on the main road. And you see them as kind of a thing, a little detour for a while, but you expect to get back on the main path and smooth things out. You can see your storms as detours or you can see them as discipleship. That there really aren't any detours. Not God-designed ones anyways. Storms are not detours that happen by accident and shouldn't be in your life. They are planned by God. Planned for our lives. And with that concept in mind, look at the text. Because 23 says, and when he got into the boat, he's leading them. And they get in the boat after him, which is which how things should be. It says, verse 24, and now you know a momentous event is going to take place because Matthew uses the little word behold 40 times in his gospel, 40 times. Most of them introducing stories that are miraculous of Jesus' power and healing or his word or people's response to him. And the ones in chapter 8 are no different. In fact, if you want to write them down, Matthew makes a big deal in chapter 8 because he's going to tell us numerous stories. Behold is used in verse 2, our text, verse 24, three times in the story about the two men who had demons that Jesus exercises out of them, one in 29, 32, and 34. So you got stories all throughout Matthew 8 including ours, and they have the word behold in them because they are events where Matthew says, let me teach you some really, really important things about following Jesus. This one in verse 24 describes it this way. There arose a great storm on the sea. Interesting word, storm, because in the Greek it's seismos, which we get seismology from, which is the way to measure 
the power of an earthquake in English language. So this is a storm, we could say, we're going to use our terminology, this is a storm that shakes everything up. This is no small storm. In fact, not only is it seismological, it's, it's mega, that's the word, it's a great storm. So it's shaking and it's powerful and it's great. And I would dare say, even though these men were by and large professional fishermen and they'd been on the sea during storms before, I don't think they'd ever been afraid like this before. This is a storm, can I say it, without dramatically overdoing it. This is a storm like they've never had before. Now, interesting, look at the text. We're going to go somewhere because it starts with a great, it says a great storm. And the end of the text, it says that there is a great calm. So in between, there's this greatness going on. The greatness of the storm, Jesus speaks the word, even though he doesn't say any words in this text. A great calm comes. Now, in between those two great opposites, the question has to be asked, if you've been reading Matthew, is will there be great faith in between the great storm and the great calm? Will there be a great faith in there? How will the disciples respond to it? Now, that's not a small question. Let me tell you why, and I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to give you the information. You studied out because I did, and it's well worth it. Let me tell you why great faith in great storms is not a given. It's not easy. And tonight I purposely had you tell them because you had literal storms, metaphorical storms, physical things. We've all faced storms. We will face storms. There's no doubt about it. But having great faith in a great storm and having the great calm be inside of you when it's not outside of you is not easy, nor is it guaranteed. Let me show you what I mean by that. If you study the entirety of Matthew's gospel, you'll find that there are, yeah, nine faith stories where Jesus does something and people respond in faith or not in faith to him by what he does or asking what he can do. Let me tell you how it works because I hope this encourages you. There are five times, and I've already alluded to it and back we said it out, there are five times when Jesus is doing something spectacular and the disciples do not believe him, right? Two of them are storms. And he, call, he says to them, O ye of little faith. So five out of the nine are stories where the faith was negligible. Very small faith at best. Note, mark this down if you're taking notes. All of the negative responses with very little faith to what, who Jesus is and what he did all of those are responses by his own disciples. Five negative faith stories. There are four positive ones. And all the four positive ones where people have faith and trust Jesus in unbelievable ways are all people who are non-disciples. Beyond that, one is a Roman centurion. Now watch. Names, the disciples are named None of the people who have positive responses of faith to Jesus, none of them have names in the scripture. None of them. The Roman centurion for his own servant, who may have been possessed, if not worse, he has this in chapter 8, ours, in verse 8 he says, Jesus, I'm not worthy or deserving that you should come under my roof. He goes, I'm not worthy of that. All you have to do, and I'm going to come back to this, it's important, all you have to do is say, literally, say a word, and my servant will be healed. 
Jesus says, I haven't seen such faith, not even on purpose, not even in all of Israel. So Jesus says, you know what the greatest faith? The people who are my people, Jewish people, the people who are my closest people, my disciples, they don't have hardly any faith at all. But the people who aren't even Jewish, they have the best faith. The Roman centurion. Another one are the guys, and you know, we betrayed it, we have portrayed it, I should say, in our dramas. The four people carrying the paralytic guy passed down through the roof. Jesus says, when they, the Bible says, when they, Jesus saw their faith. And he responds to their faith positively. But these people are unnamed Jewish people, perhaps. Chapter 9, verse 22, the woman with the issue of blood. She is, we see in other places, she's not even an Israelite. But, and she's female. Then you have two blind men in chapter 9. So here you got, you have two blind men, a paralytic person, a woman with the issue of blood, a Roman centurion. So you have all these people, right? None of them are the people that you would think are the heroes. None of the people that you think would be the ones that the Bible would tell stories about their faith. You think it would be the disciples, the ones who live and walk with Jesus and hear everything he says, but they're not. Now let me tell you this. So coming to church, toting your Bible, knowing those things does not guarantee that when the great storm comes that you will have great faith. So as may be disheartening to a minute, but you got to ask yourself, if that's not the guarantee, coming to church, being around Jesus, knowing the things about him, if that's not it, what is it then? What is it then? Let me tell you this. It is not the circumstances that determine the measure of your faith. It's the person of Jesus and how you see him in your storms, in your circumstances that will determine your faith. You see, they all had difficult circumstances. I wrote them down. Your servant needs healed. Your friend has a para- is a paralytic, can't walk, right? The woman had an issue of blood for 12 years. Two men were blind. The disciples themselves were in a storm that they could never seen the magnitude of before. They all had storms, different kinds, different shapes, different sizes. You know what the difference between the ones who had faith and the ones who had little faith? It wasn't the circumstances, They all had difficult circumstances. It was how each and every one of them viewed Jesus. That's why the Gospels were written. The Gospels were written so that you could know who he was, who he's all about, what he's all about, and what he did and what he can do so that you can trust him. See, that's why the very end of our text, to sweep to the end real quick, is they see that Jesus rebukes the water, the wind, and the waves, and it all calms down in a moment. And they, you know what the first thing out of their mouth is? Who is this man? Why? Because you remember who's talking. These are the disciples who walk around with him and have for You would think they know the answer to that question. But see, you can be around Jesus and not really even know fully who he is. Not enough, anyways, to make a difference in your storm. Oh, that would be a horrible thing to be true of people at Faith Baptist Church. That you could know some stuff about Jesus, know what he's like, hang around with him and in people who know him and not really ever know him enough that it translates into you making a different kind of response than almost anybody else would in a storm. So let me give it to you in a way that you can remember. You can either see Jesus through your storms 
or you can see your storms through Jesus. See, let me say it again. You can either see Jesus through your storms. In other words, there's the storm. Look how big it is. I don't think Jesus can handle it. Knowing him doesn't make a difference because you think all you can see is how big the storm is and not how big he is. Or, or you can see your storms through Jesus. In other words, you can look at him and look at the storm and say, this is nothing. He can handle it. I trust him. See, this will determine the difference between whether you will respond in fear like they did or in faith like the other stories in Matthew's gospel. So let me tell you a little bit about the details and what they were up against. In verse 24, it says, A great storm arose on the sea, so the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. In ancient Near Eastern cultures like first century Israel, everybody believed that the sea and the oceans were places of evil. It was the abode of evil. And they always believed that demonic, supernatural, bad spirit, whatever you want to call them, those were the forces that controlled the waters and the sea. And so you had, it was very scary to go out on them. And you can remember the story in the Gospels where, you know, Jesus goes to the Gadarenes and he, you know, the man who had the legion. Do you remember what happened to the legion? They got cast into the swine and what happened to the swine? Off the cliff and into the sea. Because everyone would read that story and say, well, of course, because that's where they want to go. They want to go back to the sea because that's where all the evil is. The evil's out there. It's in the sea. And you can't control it. So they're out in the storm. Now, I want to tell you what I believe the disciples were thinking. They're out in the storm. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And they're saying, we've never seen a storm like this before. And here's why. Because this isn't just any storm. This is one that is supernatural. This is a storm where the spirits are trying to destroy us. That evil, they know what we're about. And this is why they're upset because how can Jesus be asleep in the storm and know that what we're up against? And and they say, how can he sleep through all of that? There was a word that they used to describe winds and storms like that. They call it, in Greek, it's called pneuma, or in Hebrew, it's ruah. And both of them mean wind, and it's actually the word that in the New Testament and the Old Testament is used of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, wind, ruah. Remember Jesus said, in, when he talked to Nicodemus in John 3, that the, spirit, what, the wind, the Spirit of God blows where it is, you know, listeth in the King James, Right? But that's what the Spirit of God is, like a wind blowing out and doing God's will. And they think the evil spirits are blowing up the winds and the waves and the waters and that things are out of control. So when you hear what they think in the context of how they view water and being on the sea, especially an awful storm, you would say and we would say that that's not crazy or out of you know, the realm of normality. For them to think that that's really what's going on and then to cry out as the verse says, save us, Lord, we're perishing, verse 25. You would say, yeah, that's exactly what I would do. If I thought that demons were stirring up a storm and were trying to destroy me and Jesus was sleeping, dude, I'm getting the guy up, right? I'm saying, Lord, save us. We're dying here. This is going to be it for us. Now you think, wow, that seems pretty much makes perfect sense. Wouldn't you? 
But can I tell you this? Read the text. That's not the way Jesus sees it. In fact, he doesn't see it at all. In fact, let me go a step further. He was offended by it. He was offended by it because he asks them a question. He doesn't say, hey, it's okay, guys. Don't forget that I can handle this. No, none of that. He is upset with them. In fact, I would tell you that before he rebukes the water and the wind and the sea, before he rebukes the storm, he takes the time to rebuke them. Because here's what he's saying. The fact that you don't trust me is worse than the storm going on around you. (laughs) So Jesus isn't okay. Now, you might say, Pastor Walker, what does that mean? Does that mean that when bad things really happen and I don't know how it's going to turn out that I'm not allowed to be afraid? I don't think that's what he's trying to say. In the text he says, And they woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he says to them, why are you afraid? Put these together. Here's our little phrase. Oh, you of little faith. You see what he's saying? Fear controls us, and our faith is small when our focus is on what's outside the boat, the storm. But our faith, our faith controls us and our faith is big when our focus is on what is inside the boat, the Savior, despite what's outside the boat. See, they have made a choice. They know Jesus. They have seen, read chapter 8, they've seen everything, all the things miraculous that he can do. They are his disciples. They are to trust him, believe in him at every turn. But they have chosen to have a little faith. They don't see him. They see the storm. Their focus is completely wrong. Can I tell you this? The greatest lessons that we learn are when we are sinking. When the storm is swamping our boat and filling it. Notice when they have great calm... They can say, who is this great man? When everything is calm in your life, it isn't hard to have faith, is it? And then the truths become just abstract. And you read your Bible every day and you say, oh yeah, Jesus, you do this and you can do this. And I know you can't. And it's great when it's nothing really happening. But wait till the storm actually hints. See, to have an existential faith, to have actually one that you can experience and practice when the winds are beating against you and your storm is swamped and you don't know how it's going to turn out and you think that perhaps maybe even God himself doesn't care. Oh, see, that's the difference, isn't it? And Jesus is saying, it's not that you're robotic or mechanic and you don't have any emotions, so don't ever be afraid. He's not saying that you can't be afraid, but what he says is you can't be afraid knowing I'm in the boat and what I am like, and who I, can, who I am, and what I can do. You can't let fear control you instead of faith controlling you. How do you respond? How have you responded when your boat is sinking? Is it most of the time characterized by fear or by faith? See, storms, you have to come to the realization to have faith, you can't handle them. The disciples needed to know this. I can't even get across the sea. And by the way, before they met Jesus, they had been across the sea their whole life. 
It's not that they're novices on the water. It's not that they've never crossed this, this Sea of Galilee before. But they had to come to the realization, if they want to follow him, that you can't face storms. The ones that you're going to face when I'm gone, you can't face them without me. You can't. That's the first part about it, isn't it? It's the humility part. It's the humbling part where God tells you, I know you can do this and this and this in your life, but you know what the truth is? You just think you can. I have visited so many people in the hospital over all these years, people that were strong and virile and did all these things, and men and women alike, and it is very difficult for them at times, some at least, to be in a hospital bed and have to be able to take the buzzer and hit the little knob and call the nurse because without that nurse, they can't even get out of bed to walk from here to the end of the pew to go to the bathroom in their hospital room. Something they have done a million times in their lives. But now they don't have the ability to go over there. And you know what that does? It brings a lesson to mind that you really need him way more than you think. And he's in the boat, and we don't acknowledge it, or we don't really understand what that means. I can't get across the lake, Jesus. I can't get across the lake without you. But when you're with me, and I understand what it means that you're with me, then I'm not afraid anymore. See, Joseph, read Genesis 39 for yourself. You know how the story in that chapter begins and ends? Genesis 39, 2, he was a slave of Potiphar. He had lost his home, his family, everything. He had become a slave in Egypt, the lowest rung on the ladder. And the verse 2 says, and the Lord was with Joseph. And so in that place, he becomes very successful. But you know with the story of Potiphar's wife, he loses all that. And by the end of the chapter, he's in prison. But you know how the chapter ends? Verses 21 and 23, twice more. And the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph. Now, why would that chapter be bookended by those statements? You know why? Because no matter what storm you're facing, being sold into slavery, slave in Potiphar's house, things get better, the storm calms a little bit, the sun comes out, but by the end of the chapter, he's way back in the storm, thrown in prison. He wants you to know it doesn't matter what the weather is. It doesn't matter how bad the seas are. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Here's what you practice. The Lord is with me. When things are good and when things are bad, the Lord is with me. And you could go on and on through scriptures about how the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon couldn't grasp it. He didn't even had recognized that God was with him and did amazing things. But not till he realized and practiced this principle that, see, I can't win against the Midianites. Oh, yeah, but when Jesus is in the boat, I can. I can. Moses, God, I can't go and deliver people from Egypt. I can't stand before Pharaoh. You know what God's standing answer is? But Moses, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. You can face it, can't you? I told you one time I was playing tennis at night under the lights with my best friend who was 6'6 in high school already. He was big. I got out of my little teeny car that my dad had bought me and, you know, and so we were out there playing tennis, and people started, these guys over the fence started throwing big rocks onto the court. I'm not, I'm not sure why that even happened, but they were pelting us with these big rocks. So we got in my car, ran out, drove around. We were going to try to find them. And I don't know what we were going to do when we found them, but when you get mad, you don't think straight, right? So we found them. We pulled up, and there was three of them 
I got out of the car. I'm the same height I am now, which is nothing impressive. I got out of the car, and I said, what do you guys think you're doing? Oh, yeah, well, like I talked. What are you going to do about it? Look at my friend. My friend gets out of the car. It's slow to the ground. He gets out and steps up there, 6'6". Six, six. I said, that, we're really sorry. We don't know what happened. They apologized. Why? I was a different guy when Chris Walter was with me, <laughs> right? When he's with me, those three guys didn't make me afraid at all. What about you? What about you? Oh, Jesus is with you. That beats Chris Walter every day of the week. He's with you. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. See, the Lord, Lord, we're perishing. It's not an expression that Jesus wants to hear you say in the storm. Have you ever thought about that? So I, I wrote down on my page, I had to ask. So if Lord, we're perishing doesn't cut it with Jesus, what in the world would he have wanted him to say? What in the world would he have wanted him to say? What does he want you to say? If you can't say, hey, I'm frightened out of my mind, Lord, save me, what would he want me to say? I thought about earlier in the very same text, chapter 8, the centurion said this, Lord, you just say a word. That's all. That's all. You just say a word. Now, in our text, Jesus stands up in the boat. If you read the other versions in other Gospels, he says this, and it's translated different ways. Some say be silent. The, the Greek word means shh. I don't know if he did that. That's our colloquialism, right? He says hush. You know what he did? He really, in the end, he just said a word. When he said shh, this magnificent, gigantic storm that no one could believe even could exist was done. Now you have to understand, remember how it works with storms? I can see, I can see the winds, nothing. I mean, from all of that to nothing. Imagine you're in almost 60, 70 mile an hour winds and there's nothing anymore. I mean, zero. Imagine the rain is coming down in sheets and it goes from that to zero. But what you can't understand is how, remember, the residual would be this, that the waves will keep going for a long time, still being high, but they were like glass. Now, that is not possible apart from God. And so they wonder, who is this guy? He can do this, what? And just say one word. One word. See, you build your life on that in the storm. You build your life on the God who is in the boat with you, imminent, but is the God in the boat with you can also say in one word, shh, and everything changes. That's who you follow. That's your rabbi. That's your master. So you can get on your knees in your storms and you can say this. Just say the word, Lord, because you can. Now listen, not done, almost. We're going to listen to one song, and you've already heard it before, but I want you to hear it because the phrase... Just say a word is in it, and it's a good one. You've heard it before. Don't be a fool to think that because you follow Jesus and he can just say a word, that all your storms will hush. They will not. They will not. But I know this, 
that when I follow him and he's in the boat with me, whether they hush or not, says nothing about his abilities, but it says everything about his purposes. And I trust all of them, no matter what they are in my life. Just say the word and it'll be done. Let's listen.